Hello, welcome to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. My name is William Hemsworth. It is great to be with you all today. Have any questions on the Eucharist? Well, I guess at this time, he's going to give us some great background, some great information all about the source and summit of our faith. And he's a popular speaker, author, pilgrimage leader, Steve Ray. Steve, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks, William. I look forward to talking to you about this most important subject. Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. And I know you and I, we're, we both come from the evangelical background. So when you were an evangelical, what did you think of the Eucharist back then? Uh, we used to call it the cookie Christ. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a means of saying that we as evangelicals, we prayed to the true and living God who lives in heaven and Catholics, they worship a cookie Christ. They put a piece of bread up on their altars. They all bow down and worship them. And not only is that idolatrous, but it's also stupid. And that was what we thought about it. How, why would? That's one of the reasons I knew Catholics were wrong, is because they are worshiping bread instead of the living God. And there's nothing that God hates more than idolatry. I had um, when I became Catholic, I had somebody come to me and said the worst sin is idolatry, and it would be better for you to go sleep with a prostitute than go take the Catholic Eucharist. Oh wow. Because one is just a sexual sin. The other one is an affront to God by worshiping something other than him. So that's where pretty much where we came from in our old life. <laughs> I've come across a long chasm, you know, I've come a long way. Right. So when did your thinking begin to change on it? Um, I, I probably have said this before on your show that I really came to understand the Catholic faith more from the Old Testament than from the New Testament. And the other aspect was the Old Testament, but also the fathers of the church. Okay. And I don't, I'm not even the fathers like Augustine. I didn't care much what he said, but I wanted to know what the first two centuries said, because there wasn't a New Testament yet. There was no collected books yet. And what did the early Christians think when they read John's gospel about eat my flesh and drink my blood? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. What did the very first Christians think when they heard those words? What did they do on Sunday morning? And I assumed, of course, that they were all proto-Protestants, that they were all uh, carrying around a King James Bible and basically listening to Pastor Billy Bob on Sunday morning. And I had no concept that the early Christians were Catholic because we were always taught that the early Christians were pristine, simple Protestants who then over a period of centuries got corrupted with Catholic ideas like the Eucharist. And they then twisted everything around and that's where we get the Catholic Church today. So I assume that if I'd go back and study the early Christians and what they thought about what we would have called the Lord's Supper or communion, we would have never called it a sacrament or the Eucharist or the Mass or anything like that. That was Catholic corruption. But if we went back and read or were back, like say if you dropped me into a church at the end of the first century, I would have assumed it was like a Baptist church and that they had bread and grape juice and, um, mm. and they prayed it in remembrance only symbol. You said so it, it all changed. You asked me the question. I didn't get to it. What oh, made right. me change? <laughs> well, when I started to read the early Christians and I found out that they were not 
proto-Protestants. They were very Catholic and they have the same view of the Eucharist that we do today. Okay. Can you give us some examples of what the early church taught about the Eucharist? Well, they, they taught exactly what we teach today. They may not, they didn't use the word transubstantiation because that was something that as the church developed its doctrine and the, the Western church especially wanted to understand more uh, guys like Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and these guys, they started to analyze it and put it into more philosophical theological terms, which is great. I mean, it helps us to understand more. But the early Christians, take, for example, Ignatius of Antioch, who was in Syria at the time, in Antioch, where we were first called Christians, Acts chapter eleven twenty six, 26, it said that that, and he must have been taught by the apostles, because that was his age time. Peter was a bishop of Antioch for a while. And this man was an old man in 106 AD. So remember this, 106 AD, he's already an old man in his 70s. So where did he learn what he knew as a bishop? And he was respected through the whole Roman Empire as a bishop, an Orthodox bishop, following in the teaching of the apostles, probably one that had the teaching of the apostles still ringing in his ears. He said this, Beware of the heretics who refuse to partake of the Eucharist because they deny that it's the same body and blood of our Lord that hung on the cross. Now, wow. for me, a Baptist to read that, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That doesn't sound very Baptist to me. He says that the Eucharist on the altars of the churches is the same body and blood that hung on the cross. And he also said, do not anybody partake of the Eucharist without the bishop, meaning under the authority of the bishop, which means there's all a whole area, diocese, so to speak, a whole province has one bishop. Well, first of all, I had to ask myself, I'm a, I'm a Baptist, where's my bishop? I don't have a bishop. The early church, all they all had bishops at 100 AD. And this isn't something that just got developed. This is at obviously apostolic because right. it was practiced everywhere. It was assumed already by the beginning of the second, at the end, but when John the Apostle is still alive or has just died a couple of years earlier, everybody in the, all Christians have a singular bishop, and you are not allowed to take the Eucharist unless you're under the authority of the bishop and you've been baptized first. And then Justin Martyr, who just a few years later says, we take this bread not as any ordinary bread, but that which has been changed into the body and blood of Christ by which we ourselves are changed. Well, I could not find one of them who supported my Baptist ideas, not one. They all held to the same belief of the real presence of Christ and they called it a sacrifice. But wasn't Christ sacrificed once and for all? Shouldn't that be enough? Why do Catholics sacrifice Christ over and over and over again? That's a sacrilege. But I found out that the early Christians considered it, a, a, the Mass, a sacrifice, and so did St. Paul. Right. In 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, he refers to it also as a sacrifice. Now, you said a moment ago that the Old Testament had a lot to do with your understanding of the Eucharist. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, when I give talks on the Eucharist, which I do a lot, I mean, if you go on YouTube now and do Steve Ray uh, Eucharist, you'll, you'll get some of my talks pop up on that, even if they're 10 minute segments. But when I give these talks, the first 20 minutes, I set it up so that 
you see that the Old Testament prefigured, it already prepared us for the Eucharist. Everything we do as Catholics, everything we do in the church was already prepared for in the Old Testament. We already were told it was going to happen so that when Jesus comes, we can look back and go, oh, the Passover lamb, that's a picture. Oh, now I get it. The Passover lamb is the Eucharist. Oh, my goodness. Melchizedek, that strange guy that comes out of the city of Salem. And it says in Genesis 14, he's a he's a priest and a king and he brings out bread and wine. He's a picture of Jesus Christ coming out of Jerusalem, bringing bread and wine, the sacrament. It's Eucharistic. Oh, my goodness. Yes, the manna that fell in the wilderness. The manna is the bread which came down from heaven. And all of a sudden, the whole Old Testament is full of the Eucharist. The showbread in the temple, the bread that was there that they weren't allowed to eat. It was in the presence of God all the time. There's so many, even the even Mary uh, going to Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus, where the Bethlehem means house of bread. Mary is going to the house of bread to deliver the bread. Even the simple things like that. And then she puts them in a manger. Why does she put them in? How many mothers put their babies in a manger? A manger is a food dish for very unsanitary farm animals. So why did she do that? To give us a picture that her son was going to become our food, that we as the sheep of God's pasture are going to come and eat him in the manger. So when we go to an altar now, I see baby Jesus on the altar in the sacrament, and we're going to eat him because he's giving himself for us to eat. So the whole Old Testament all of a sudden becomes full of the Eucharist and of Mary and of Jesus and of the church and of the papacy. It's all there in picture form, prefiguration, so that when we finally get to Christ and he becomes the lens that we look back at the Old Testament, we say, oh my goodness, maybe Moses didn't realize this when he was writing it, but now that we look through the lens of Christ, that and that, oh my goodness. And that takes me right to Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus and has said that he opened the scriptures to them and showed him how everything in Moses and the prophets referred to him. Yep, he was there the whole time. <laughs> when you, when yep, you see yeah. it from that perspective. Yep. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. How did you come to grips with those words from Jesus? I realized, and this was a little bit later, but I realized that when I read those words as a Protestant, I inserted words, just like Martin Luther, when he read, we are saved by faith, he inserted in his mind the word alone, we're saved by faith alone. He added the word to scripture. I was doing the same thing because I was saying when I read that, my mind said, this represents my body. I couldn't accept the fact that it was his body. It was obviously a symbol. What I, what I like to say now is that when Jesus is up there, this is the Passover meal, which is where a lamb is slain. And you have to have a lamb and you have to have a priest. And we have a big problem in the upper room because we never have any mention of a lamb. They're right. eating bread and they're drinking wine, but we don't hear anything about a lamb, nor do we hear anything about a priest. So we've got a big problem. But when you think about it, wait a minute, we do have a lamb. Who's the lamb at that meal? Jesus himself. And who's the priest? 
Jesus himself. He's both the victim and the priest. And when you ate the Passover meal all the way back from the book of Exodus, when Moses brought the, brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, they had to prepare the Passover meal with a lamb and they had to cook the meat of the lamb and they had to eat the meat of the lamb before they leave. Where is the lamb in the upper room? It is Jesus. And what does he say you have to eat? The meat of the lamb. This is my body eat this. What are you eating? You're eating the meat of the lamb. And if you understand it in Jewish terms, and in terms of the Passover meal, it's pretty clear to see what he's thinking. Also, I imagine myself there at that meal. I'm reclining because they didn't sit at a table like you and I are now. And after this, I'm going to have dinner and I'm going to go sit at the table in a chair. But they didn't. They laid on the, on the floor and reclined at meal. And while they were reclining at meal, I imagine myself reclining with them and saying to the Lord, and I hear him say, Eat, this is my body, which, which will be given up for you. In other words, he's already saying that what's in my hand, that is my body. And I'm going to be giving my body this up for you on the cross tomorrow or the next day. So when I hear him say that, Steve Ray the Baptist said, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, don't you realize that um, I think you need to rephrase what you just said, because there's going to be a billion Catholics sometime that uh, believe you really meant what you just said, that it's really your body. So because all of us here at the table, right, guys, you all see it's really bread. It's not dripping blood, right, guys? Andrew, James? Everybody, it's, it's, it looks like bread, right? Even smells like, Lord, we know that this is bread. So we think you ought to reword what you're saying and say this represents my body so we don't cause confusion for a bunch of stupid Catholics down the road. Now, can you imagine me saying that at that meal? Some people say, knowing you, Steve, yeah, I can imagine you saying that. But can you imagine me, though, really, the audacity of me telling Jesus he should reword what he's saying because this is the nuptial meal. He said, I have longed for this night. Why has he longed for this night? Because it's like the marriage meal. It's like the marriage. It's the consummation of the marriage. The groom is giving his body to the bride. Those apostles there are representing the church, the bride of Christ, and he is the he's the bridegroom, and he is giving his whole body to his bride, and his bride is receiving the groom's body into herself by eating him. He, we're receiving, this is the nuptial meal, and I have the audacity to tell him he says it wrong. When he says, I'm going to give my whole body to you, this is what he's saying. That what, What's going on there is so beautiful. And so what Augustine said is that when Jesus said, this is my body, he held his own flesh in his own hands, and therefore we must adore before we eat. So that's some of my thinking about that passage. Okay. But now I know where you're going next is John chapter 6. Well, of course, that's the big one. <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what we use as Catholics, you know, the whole bread of life discourse. <laughs> Yep. But also as Protestants, we had objections raised from it. Um, yep. So Jesus says, eat my flesh. So I guess, why did you like this passage so much as a Protestant? And I guess, how do you use it against Catholics? Well, we really didn't like it. And in fact, I know of Bible studies that skip that passage because it's just not easy to deal with. Okay. When we were Baptists, we said the Bible says what it means and it means what it says, except for John chapter 6. The whole humanity, whole humanity changed. <laughs> what do you do with these words of Jesus? He's being very explicit. Now, if he was speaking symbolically, which is what we said, here's how we would explain it. 
that it's symbolism. What he means is when you believe in him, it's he comes to live inside of you, right? He says that I come to live in you. And we said you invite Jesus to come into your heart, which is never taught in the Bible, but that's what we used to say. And when you accept Christ, then he comes to live inside of you. Well, when he says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's symbolic. It means that when we have faith in him, he comes into us like we eat him. He's inside of us now, which is really poor. That is the sloppiest exegesis or biblical study that you're going to come across. And we would say that if everybody there thought he meant what he really said, so they left. And, and they thought that Jesus meant eating his flesh and blood. And obviously they thought he must be crazy to say that. He had, either he's speaking symbolically and we'll stay and listen to him or he's not. He's speaking what he really means and we're getting out of here. And 15,000 disciples walked away from him that day. And by the way, as a Baptist, I walked away with them. But Jesus could have called them back and he could have said, hey, guys, Come on back. I'm only speaking symbolically. Let me explain the symbolism to you. I don't really mean what I just said. I'm just using an example, a symbol. But he didn't do that. He let them walk away to the point where he looks at the other 12 and said, are you guys going to leave too? Now, when I was a Protestant, there was one verse I liked in that passage because Catholics were so proud of that chapter. They used to think, oh my goodness, that's our Eucharist. Everybody knows it. It's so clear. Oh my goodness, just read that to a Protestant. They're going to fall flat on their face and become a Catholic. But the reality was Protestants didn't because it doesn't fit their tradition. Let's face it. Protestants have a tradition and John 6 does not fit their tradition. So they have to kind of not discuss it much. So I liked verse 63 because that says the, the flesh profits nothing. My words are spirit and life. The flesh profits nothing. So I would say to air, I get next to sit next to a Protestant on an airplane, or I mean a Catholic. If I was Steve Ray, the Protestant, and I have a Catholic next to me on the airplane, I'd say, do you believe that, uh, that the bread and the wine on the altar become the body and blood of Christ? And they'd say, yes, it's really his flesh and blood, huh? Yeah. I says, well, would you, what do you think about chapter 60, verse 63, where it says, and this is where I'd use that. I'd say, I got you now. I got you, Catholic. You can't get away now. Jesus says, my, the, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh is of no avail. The flesh profits nothing. Depends on what translation you have. Well, what do you do with that now? You just said that it's the body of Christ. It's how you get eternal life. It's how you're raised from the dead. But Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. So he just undercuts you. I cut you off at the kneecaps. Why does Jesus say that? Is he just, does he conclude his homily by nullifying everything he just said? No. What you have to do when you're studying scripture is be very careful. He does not say my flesh profits nothing. He said the flesh profits nothing, which is very different. And Protestants are very sloppy sometimes if they try to say that the flesh means his flesh profits nothing. If you say that his flesh profits nothing, you prove too much because then you deny the need for the enfleshment of God, the incarnation and the bodily resurrection. You're saying it's not necessary for him to come in the flesh. When you get on my computer right here, you see me every once in a while, look over here. I've got a program called Verbum and it's on my Catholic program. By the way, if people want to learn how to study the Bible and everything Catholic, I'm having a conference January 8th through 10th. 
It's a virtual conference, and I'm putting it on. I have over 50 of the best Catholic Bible teachers that are coming on that weekend to give talks. Scott Hahn, Jeff Cavins, Father P Mitch Pacwa, Peter Kraft, you would not believe the names. Jewish converts, to, uh, anyway, come on there. And I'm gonna also have these people with a software explaining it on this program. So I can go on my iPhone, even out in Capernaum where I give this talk, I can touch my phone where it says, the flesh profits nothing and I can touch the flesh and it and I can search where else in the Bible says that where it says it also is in Matthew 26 it says it in John chapter John chapter um, 18 8 and what it means is in John and Matthew 26 Jesus said you keep falling asleep on me in the garden of Gethsemane the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And what is he referring to? His flesh? No, he's referring to this, me. My flesh is weak. My five puny little senses, smelling, tasting, hearing, seeing, touching. I cannot understand spiritual things with this, with the gray matter stuck between my ears, my brain. I can't understand. I would never have comprehended the, the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or what heaven is like. Neither would I ever understand the Eucharist. And Jesus now is explaining in the way I say it when I'm talking to young people is Jesus is this space alien. He's come from somewhere else. He's come from outside of our planet down here to tell us things by revelation that we could never know with our own the flesh. And so he says, I'm telling you all these deep spiritual sacramental mysteries and you don't understand them because the flesh profits you nothing. But I've come to teach you these things if you'll listen to me. And then Peter says, well, we have no idea what you're talking about, eating flesh and drinking blood. We have no idea. We're scandalized too. But what we know is that you're not from around here. And if we stay around with you and listen, you're telling us things from heaven that we could never understand on our own. And if we stay with you long enough, you'll help us understand them, even though we certainly don't understand them right now. And then Jesus helps them understand them. So I love that verse because when he says the flesh profits nothing, he means our physical beings, our minds without the revelation of God. We can never understand this. It avails us nothing. It's no profit. But we better darn well believe it if he explains it to us. I want to transition to the mass because we can't have the Eucharist without the mass. Now, is the, how is the mass a sacrifice? Can you explain that to us? I used to say in the Bible, at least four times, it says that Jesus was crucified once and for all for our sins. So why do you Catholics sacrifice him, crucify him over and over and over again? It's a sacrilege and you ought to leave that Catholic church because you already know. You know why you keep doing that Catholics? Because you don't know the word of God. If you read the Bible, you'll see that your sins are, Jesus died once and for all, not on your altars. But Jesus doesn't die again on our altars. This is a sacramental representation. He represents it. He re, uh, reperforms it in a sense so that we have it. And the way I describe this is I'm compressing what I give in my talk into an hour. I'm compressing it into just seconds here. Sure. But if you imagine God is in out, he's in eternity. He is existence. He is eternity. Every, Nothing exists outside of him. And he decides to create a bubble called space and time, the universe. And we're stuck inside the bubble, space and time. And one day, God himself came bloop, into our bubble. He came out of eternity into our bubble, bloop, into there. And he walked around for 33 years, was crucified, died, and was buried once and for all, 2000 AD, inside the bubble of space and time. And then bloop, he went back out into heaven. Okay. 
Now, we are in, the sacrifice took place in space and time. But God doesn't live in space and time. He's outside. And for him, everything that happens in here is an eternal event. He can, he's like the author of a book. He can open the cover and he writes the book so he can look at the beginning and at the end at the same time. Everything is like the bubble for him. He can look in and it's all. What happens at the mass is not a new sacrifice. What happens is that sacrifice that's ever present in the, in the eyes of God. And you think that's not the case? Read Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through, nine, through 8. John says, I looked into heaven and I saw on the altar in front of the throne of God, I saw a lamb standing yet though slain. What did he see? He sees the Passover lamb. Paul tells us that Jesus is now our Passover lamb. When God wakes up in the morning, I like to say it this way, when he wakes up in the morning, and he yawns and he wipes the sleep from his eyes and he has his first cup of coffee and he wakes up, what does God see in front of him? He sees the lamb slain, the Passover lamb. One of my favorite paintings is called The Adoration of the Lamb. Look at it at Google when we're done. Look it up, everyone. Look up Google Adoration of the Lamb, and you'll see a beautiful painting by Van Eck. It's in Ghent, Belgium. I went there to see it because it's one of my favorite top 10 paintings. And there you see an altar in the middle of a field, and on the altar is a beautiful lamb majestic standing there, and he's got his throat slit, a Passover lamb with his throat slit, and blood is gushing out of his throat into a golden chalice on the altar. Van Eck understood Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, that even right this minute when God looks, there is the lamb standing in front of him as the sacrifice. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he is our sacrifice. Not that he was 2,000 years ago, but right now, if I sin, he is my sacrifice. And in most Protestant translations of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, King James Version says this, NIV says it, that the that Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. So if he was slain before the foundations of the world, then he is my sacrifice. And you look into the future and he's still the lamb slain. Then that is an eternal event in the eyes of God. It's an eternal event. And what happens at the mass is that eternal sacrifice comes bloop, back down into the bubble. It makes itself present to us that day, the body and blood of Christ in sacramental form every day. Bloop, it comes down. Why? Because we need it. It's like the sun. The, the ancient people used to think the sun was born new every day, a new sun. It raced across the sky and then it died. Oh, poor sun, it died. Oh, good, a new one is born in the morning. But when we got in the space shuttle and we went out into space, we looked and we said, oh, wait, the sun is eternal, so to speak. It never goes away. It's only the flesh profits nothing because our senses tell us that it goes away, but that's because we're spinning on the earth and we don't see it. And we go around and we come up on the other day and there it is again, but it was always there. This is the same thing. Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is like the sun. It's always there. And God represents it. Every morning we see the sun represented. Why? Because it makes the chlorophyll, which makes the leaves, which makes things to eat, and it keeps us alive and warm and all the things that we need. Without the sun, we're dead. And without the Son of God, S-O-N, rising every morning and representing himself in the mass, we are also dead. It's so wonderful to be a Catholic. It all makes so much sense. It certainly does. Steve, I know you mentioned that Bible conference a moment ago. Where can our listeners go to sign up for it? Does if it you go to like my you know? website, 
catholicconvert.com. Um, and scroll down on my blog a little bit. There's a link there that you can sign up. And also, if you go to um, Virtual Catholic Conferences, VCC, Virtual Catholic Conference, you can click on there and it has a link and you can register now. You won't be able to see it now because we are right now getting all the speakers signed up. Everybody is recording their talks on video. We're getting all of this put together. And on January 8th, it's gonna open up and if you're registered, you can get on. It's free. But if you want to have all of that material, we're going to have some extra things on there that aren't free. But all the talks are going to be free, 50 at least of them. The best Catholic Bible teachers in the country, nuns and Jews. Ah, you won't believe the people that are on there. And if you want to keep it, I think it's a small fee. Then you can keep that conference. You can have those talks forever with all of the materials we're going to have materials for reading the Bible and a catechism together in a year, how to use the Bible study software, all these different Bible study programs. And the title of the, of the talk is Take and Read, a journey, a, 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 a journey into the Bible. Take and Read is what Augustine heard the angel say to him when he picked up his Bible and began to read it, his conversion. Take and read. So we're doing the same. Take the Bible and read, a journey into the Bible. Everything Bible for the Catholic. So virtual Catholic convert, uh, virtual Catholic conference, or go to my website, catholicconvert.com, and you can sign up through there too. And I hope maybe you'll put it on your link or something with the show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I got the email for it about two weeks ago. And this sounds exciting. It does. It sounds like it's, it sounds amazing. I mean, um, yeah. like you said, a lot of the great ones are on there. Yourself, Scott Hahn, Jeff Cavins. I think Brian Mercer is going to be on there as well. Yeah. Um, yep. So it's going to be great time. Every so topic I, you can imagine about the Bible. Yeah. So I encourage everyone to sign up. Like Steve said, it's free. It's just going to help you grow in your faith. So Steve, I thank you for joining me. I know your talks are normally about an hour long on the Eucharist. We've condensed it down into a half hour, but thanks for taking us on the journey, not your conversion, but the Old Testament through the New Testament. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. I enjoyed doing it. And uh, maybe get let's get in touch after the end of the year. We can, um, there's a lot more topics to cover. We haven't uh, done Mary yet, have we? We have done Mary. Mary. Okay. We've done, yeah. yes, we have done Mary, my conversion. And now this, um, there's a lot of other topics we can discuss if you want to after the first. Oh, year. absolutely. I'll be in touch. Okay. So, Sounds good. Bye -bye. All right. Well, God bless. Are you ready? Ready to discover your soul, your wild side, your passion, your joy, and excitement. From the latest slots and table games, to award-winning dining, to world-class entertainment, to a luxurious resort. Discover all this and more. Discover with Soul. Casino Del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Are you ready? Enterprise of Pasquayaki Tribe. Introducing Sahara Bets Rewards. Earn points while betting on your favorite sports and redeem up to $500 in gift cards. Download Sahara Bets on the Apple App or Google Play Store. Must be 21 or older and within the state of Arizona to gamble. Sahara Bets supports responsible gambling. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP.